You belong here. Uh, and I'm so excited to get into this message. The Lord showed me some really powerful things from John chapter 3. So take out a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, open up a smartphone Bible. If you don't have a smartphone Bible, you can quickly download one and get to John chapter 3. I encourage reading along with me in the text. I use the English Standard Version. Um, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to go right to the text. If you don't mind, stand with me at all locations. We're going to read this passage, John 3, 22, through the end of the chapter. So Jesus has just finished his conversation with Nicodemus. That conversation is now over. And we head into a moment in the Bible, in the Gospels, where there's a, tradi- a, tra- a transition from John the Baptist and his powerful ministry And it shifts now to Jesus. John the Baptist, the predecessor, the forerunner, the voice in the wilderness, now Jesus has arrived. John the Baptist's ministry fades into the background and Jesus takes preeminence. Here's how that moment goes down. Verse uh, 22 of John 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was... Plenty of water there, and the people were coming to be baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion, and some translations put an, a, a, an argument or a debate. So, this is an argument. An argument arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, this is John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I don't know if you know the rest of that verse. And I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness about what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word, and let's pray and ask God to speak to us today. Heavenly Father, I ask that my words will be your words, that our hearts will be receptive to hear you and receive the truth that transforms us. Lord God, I pray our minds are renewed, and I pray that our eyes see Jesus Him and Him only. In His mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat at all locations. You belong here. Part six, title of the message There's greatness in you. There's greatness in you. Turn to your neighbor and just say, There's greatness in you. All locations, good. Just do that. Now turn to your second choice and say, Sorry. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Say, You too. Greatness. I don't know if anybody wants to be great, but I think we, we do. We want to be good, at least. We want to, and what, by great, I mean we want to be effective. We want to be effective. Not just great for the sake of greatness, but effective. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what? Today I really want to mail it in. Today I want to be mediocre. <laughs> That's not anybody's game plan. That, that wasn't anybody's New Year's resolution. Maybe a few people, but they're not here. <laughs> Uh, we want to be great. I want to be great at what I do. I, I know you probably, men, women who have jobs outside of here, of course, you, you don't want to just do it uh, just somewhat. You want to be good at it. You want to be effective. And I was thinking about this idea of greatness. Greatness is not a sin. It's not a problem. Actually, we're going to talk about John the Baptist today because John the Baptist is somebody that Jesus considered great. And I think we can learn a lot about this man and greatness. Greatness is not a sin. It's, it's how we get to greatness. Back in 2001, there was a book that came out. It became an instant bestseller in the business and corporate world. It was called Good to Great. And it was written by a guy named Jim Collins. Jim Collins became a world-renowned speaker and author because of the success of that book. And in that book, he highlights 11 companies, 
11 companies that he believed went from good to great. He scoured the internet and articles and magazines. He did a ton of interviews of CEOs and high-level management in these companies. And he came up with the game plan. How do you bring a corporation, a company, an organization from good to great? And a lot of people being in the business of wanting to be great bought the book. Again, instant best seller. Ironically, two of the companies that he talked about and highlighted in that book that did become great did not stay great. In fact, they kind of crashed and burned. One of them, you might remember, was called Circuit City. How many remember Circuit City? Like two of us. Okay, <laughs> Four or five. Okay, yeah. Circuit City used to be Best Buy's number one competitor. And they were, I used to love going to Circuit City. I mean, I remember when Circuit City was out, that's when I first started to have kids. And you know, men, what we would say is we'd go into the store to get milk, but we'd take a road trip to Circuit City and just browse the electronics. Anybody with me on that? The reason why is because we did not want to change diapers. You know what I'm talking about? And so then we would come back uh, three hours later and have a new, you know, CD player or whatever. Anyway, that's how it went back then. But, but Circuit City got off their game plan. And I don't know if you know this, but what happened that led them to their downfall, I didn't even know this. Um, they actually got into the business of selling cars and renting DVDs. Now, now renting DVDs, I can kind of understand, but no one's going to Circuit City to buy a car. That's called getting off mission. That's, that's called not knowing what you're here for. And the second company that I want to talk about that he highlights going from good to great that crashed and burned was named Fannie Mae. Yeah, all young people, you hear that groan? Yeah, yeah. The, your, your parents or your older siblings went through what we all went through as a country because of Fannie Mae's crash and burn. Fannie Mae is currently under government conservatorship because they sold predatory loans to people who couldn't afford them and literally were one of the main catalysts to the Great Recession, the financial collapse of 2008. It's kind of amazing, though, that they were once considered great, which is just a point that just because you get to great doesn't mean you stay great because maybe you didn't get to great the way you should have. Amen, somebody. Well, years later, after all those catastrophes, Jim Collins, ever the author and opportunist, wrote another book called How the Mighty Fall. <laughs> and so instead of talking about the rise, he talked about the descent of companies who were great and couldn't hold on to it. Of course, he talked about Circuit City, Fannie Mae, their mistakes. And he outlines in that book six stages that lead to crashing and burning. Stage number one, you'll never believe it. It's actually a very biblical principle, and I believe it's actually true, 100%. The first stage that a company will enter to crash and burn is this, pride. Pride will lead to your destruction. That's a biblical point, isn't it? The proverb says pride comes before a fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. And so ironically, Jim Collins, in, in examining the business world, stumbled upon a very pertinent biblical truth. Nothing can destroy your life faster than pride. But I particularly love, and this is why I bring up this book, How the Mighty Fall, I particularly appreciated how Jim Collins unpacked pride in that book, in that chapter. <clears throat> and he says this, pride is exhibited when you get your why and your what confused. And let me explain that. When you get your reason and your actions confused. In other words, what you do and why you do it. And if you conflate those or you confuse those and you don't have clarity on those, you are susceptible to pride and eventually destruction. Nobody wants this. So here's the big point. Here's where I'm going today. Here's what I think John the Baptist outlines for us. Keep your why and your what straight. I think about our our country right now, our culture, our leaders. You think about presidents, and we have not had a very good track record for the past, I don't know, 20-some-odd years of presidents who, who kept their why and their what straight. The president is there to preside over the country, to lead and to help people, to govern. But so many times these guys get their why confused, and they think the presidency is about them. Or in the ministry, in churches, how many pastors do we have to see? How many church leaders do we have to see? Crash and burn. And I think about this as here's what happened is because their, their why and their what got confused. They stopped realizing that, that their what, ministering God's word, was not about them. It was about Jesus and about people. Right? That's what ministers are supposed to do. Ministers, me, people like me, are supposed to connect people to Jesus, not people to themselves. Okay, okay. 
But so many times pastors get that confused and then they start to think that the people are there for them. May it never be at Waters Church. That's why you don't care if I'm on video or not. Amen. Because it's not about me. It's about God and you and people and God. And I believe that people who are connected to God make the best impact in people who are not connected to God. It's not about the preacher. It's about the people. It's about the Lord. I think about sometimes moms and dads. We can fall into this trap of confusing our why and our what. And here's what I mean by that. You start to have children because you want to raise a family, but before you know it, those little children become little walking, talking resumes of your life. What I mean by that is you're no longer parenting, now you're promoting. Now it's about making sure that they succeed, climb the ladder, get to the school you think they deserve, get to the grades that you think they deserve, get to the location in life that you think they deserve, because really it's not about them anymore. It's about showing the world that you're a good parent, showing the world that you're valuable because you raised those kids. And how many kids struggle under the burden and the weight of trying to live up to mom and dad's expectations to validate their parents instead of being fed and led by parents who love them and sacrifice them, sacrifice for them and lead them in the fear of the Lord. Like this, this is important, friends. This is a life issue. You've got to keep your why and your what straight. I think about the industry leader. The industry leader who comes to market with a new product or a new plan to deliver that product. And he gets great success and his company takes off. But before you know it, he forgets the fact that he started that business to help people's lives and improve people's lives. And before you know it, it became about the bottom line. It became about cutting corners, ditching quality control. And before you know it, you have a less stellar product and a very rich, probably too rich CEO that got more involved in making money than in making a difference in people's lives. Ladies and gentlemen, our country and our world are filled with with the carnage that results when people forget why they do what they do. There is a man in the Bible that did not forget that. His name is John the Baptist. And I would like to submit to you, based on the testimony of one Jesus Christ, that John the Baptist nailed this better than anybody else. The reason why I know is because Jesus said it. Matthew chapter eleven, eleven. This is Jesus' testimony about John the Baptist. Truly, I say to you, look at what he says. Among those born of women, there has arisen, say the next three words, all locations. What? No one greater than John the Baptist. Oh, imagine Jesus saying that about you. And then this next line, which confuses people, but I'm gonna take a few seconds to explain it. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. What, what does that mean? Does that mean like lackluster or uh, terrible half-hearted Christian, you know, is, is better than John? No, not better, greater. And here's what I mean. Greater in capacity, greater in opportunity, and greater in mission. And here's what I mean by that. See, what Jesus is saying is that the, 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 John the Baptist was the last and final prophet under the old order. If you got a Bible right now open, you're, you're right now sitting in a page that belongs to the new order, John chapter three. Right, before that you've got Luke, Mark, Matthew, and then you got the old order, Malachi, and before that. So you got the old order, the old testament, the old covenant. And Jesus is saying, according to the old order, you stack up Isaiah, you stack up David, you stack up Solomon, you stack up Jeremiah. Let me tell you something. John the Baptist is greater than all of them. Wow, this guy is at the top of the list. But in the new order, because you are now born again of the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, born again of the Holy Spirit, filled with the third person of the, of the Trinity, you have your sins washed away, you are, you are saved by grace, you are made righteous before God, that the least important member in this new order is greater than John the Baptist, who is the greatest of the old order. I want you to think about what that means about you. You've got tremendous opportunity and Jesus sees greatness in you. Let's try this again. Touch your neighbor, just say there's greatness in you. Go ahead, just do it. Yeah, choose the other one this time, okay? And, and, and what does that mean? What, 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 how do we stay there? How do we get there? A couple more details about John the Baptist because I want to build up the case for his response to this question that he's presented with in John chapter 3. Uh, here's how he started his ministry in, in Matthew 3. It says um, that he went out to the wilderness. Went out to the wilderness, not to the city. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to the important places where people all congregated. He went out into the desert of Judea. And I've been to Israel. And let me tell you something. We're going to Israel in October. And I hope that you come with us. But, but they don't even take you there. They don't even take you to the wilderness of Judea. Do you know why? Because there's nothing there. Just like 2,000 years ago, there was nothing there. But... 
This guy, John the Baptist, steps out into the middle of nowhere and starts preaching. And his preaching is not exactly seeker-friendly, not exactly like neighbor-friendly. What's his message? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does it say? How does his ministry go? Look what it says in verse 5 of that same chapter in Matthew 3. Then Jerusalem and all, somebody say all. All the region around the Jordan were going to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. Ladies and gentlemen, he goes out in the middle of nowhere, and by the way, I don't know if you've read up on John the Baptist any other places, but it talks about what he wore and what he ate. He wore camel's skin, he wore leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This guy was the original Bear Grylls. This is man versus, this is prophet versus wild. <laughs> Have I dated myself with that show, that reference? <laughs> I don't know. But, but, but there he is out in the middle of the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey with a camel skin and leather belt, and he's preaching repentance, and look at the results. Everybody goes and sees him. Do you know what we call that in the business of church leadership? You know what we call that? Success. That's raving success. When you can gather the whole area around you and you got this message of repentance. Hey, what did, what did Herod think about John the Baptist? This is an important passage. Mark chapter six, verse 20, it says this. Herod... This is, a, this is a wicked king, by the way. Herod was a, a wicked, jealous, evil king. And yet it says about that guy, Herod what? Feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man. And notice the next line, and he kept him safe. Like Herod, who hated God and hated God's people, was like, I'm not messing with that guy. And he kept him safe and he protected him. And it says this, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. That's kind of an interesting dichotomy, right? That would be like one of our governors, one of our leaders, civic leaders coming into our church and be like, man, I don't know, about, I, I don't know if I like what that guy has to say, but I like hearing him. That's, that's who John the Baptist was. He was respected, he was admired, and he was greatly followed. And he had this burgeoning ministry, this burgeoning influence in the first century, and he was the predecessor before Jesus. And Jesus even testifies that he's the greatest man born of women in the old order of things. And now in John chapter 3, He's gonna lose it all. He's gonna hand it over. And all that was his, and all of his influence, and all of his organization, and all of his structure is gonna shift from his ministry into the hands of Jesus. How do you go through something like that? How do you live well through something like that where you see the crest of the sunset of your life? And you know it's coming to an end, and yet you can be glad and have joy. John the Baptist meets that out for us, shows it to us in 2020 vision. Let's look at it a little closer, what we read today. Verse 22, after Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, a couple things. Notice, if you're taking notes, underline Judean countryside. And would you underline baptizing? Because that should ring some bells. We just read from Matthew chapter three, verse one. That's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist went into the Judean countryside and baptized. That's how he got the name Baptist, right? Now, by the way, he wasn't John the Sprinkler. <laughs> he was John the Baptist, full immersion, all the way under, amen? When you, when you have a health concern, like we just saw in that testimony right there, we will sprinkle or we will dump water on your head to protect you. But, but nonetheless, the, the, the more common method is full immersion into baptism. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's moving in on John's territory and he's moving in on John's ministry. And then it says this, look at verse 23. John also was baptizing. So there's a little bit of an overlay between Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. Because verse four says he wasn't in prison yet. And what, is he, what does it say about John? He was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there and the people were coming and being baptized by him. Now let me just give you a little bit of geography about this passage. Uh, Jesus is from Galilee up in the north, from Nazareth way up here. Then there's Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. Down here, this area right here is called the Samaritan area. That's where people didn't go because they were half-breed Jews and they didn't like them and they hated them. And we'll talk about one of them next week. And then down south of them is Judea, Jerusalem, the city, the capital city of, of uh, Israel. And then down here, the Judean wilderness. Here's what the scripture is showing us. Jesus comes from Galilee down, down to the south of the Judean wilderness. He invades. He basically encroaches on John's territory. That is his land. It's like he went down the street and popped up a church tent and said, come to the revival meeting. This is the first church of Jesus. And he's right there in John's territory, and here's what John does. Anon near Salim is near Samaria, right about here between Jerusalem and the Samaritan area. And so what John does is he moves out. He relocates. And here's what I mean by that. He gets out of the way of Jesus. 
Here's how you stay great in life. Here's how you get great in life. Are you ready? You get out of the way for Jesus. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're living, wherever you're going, whatever your business is, whatever your job is, whatever your family structure is, get out of the way for Jesus to have his way in that life that you think is yours. Amen, somebody? This is the first thing that John the Baptist patterns for us and it's a powerful moment. Now, here's what goes down after that. Verse 25, a discussion or an argument arose and some of John's disciples and a Jew had this discussion, this debate about purification. Purification was another name for baptism or washing. So <laughs> even 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus, people who believed in God were arguing and debating about how baptism should happen. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been 2,000 years and nothing has changed. If there's one thing the church loves to do is have a good theological debate about non-essentials. Amen, somebody? <laughs> Why don't you baptize? Why do you sprinkle? Why do you read that Bible? Why do you read this Bible? I mean, that's what we've been doing for 2,000 years. And so, you know, it's going to happen. Anyway, there's an argument. John does not go, John the gospel writer, does not go into the details of the argument, but what he does do is he says this, one argument led to another one. And isn't that how it goes? Hey, if you're part of a life group at Waters Church, please, please don't get into arguments in life group. Don't get into debates about secondary issues. Stay out of that stuff. Love each other. As you like to say down here in the South, if you get mad at somebody, just say, bless your heart. <laughs> Amen. We say something different up North, don't we? Amen. We're a little bit more honest. But anyway, we, what we're talking about here is just don't do that. It's not about what we disagree on. It's about what we agree on. And what we agree on is Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Amen. Anyway, one argument, and this is why you don't want to get into arguments, because one argument leads to another. And here's the argument about purification leads to a little discussion, a little, a little dig, if you will, at John the Baptist's ministry. Here's what it says. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, and that's a very big term of respect there, Rabbi, notice the lack of names. They're talking about Jesus, but they don't say his name. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, remember the guy that you baptized? You remember the guy who came after you? Remember the guy who got here after you started this whole movement? Well, look. And by the way, just circle look for a second there. Because I thought about this. What are they doing? They're telling John the Baptist, hey, you better watch out. Jesus is coming for your ministry. Look over there. He's baptizing. And notice the last line. And what? All are going dim. Your church is going down. His church is going up. Everybody's moving out to him. What are you going to do about that, John? And I just wanted to make a little note about that statement right there because John does not bring this up. Somebody that follows John does. Here's the point that I wanted to make real quick before we get to the main points. Even if you're not measuring your life against somebody else, there's always somebody willing to do that for you. Even if you avoid all comparisons... There's always an advertisement waiting for you in your social media scroll. There's always a commercial popping up on the radio or on television. Or there's always somebody saying something to you that gets you to compare your life to somebody else's life. Don't you just hate that stuff? This is why we'll buy the thing we shouldn't buy. This is why we'll spend the money we shouldn't spend. This is why we'll feel anxious and depressed, young people. Because we're constantly in, an, in, a, in a culture of comparison. And when we get into a comparison culture, we get enslaved to what we think our life is missing instead of remembering and rejoicing over what our lives have. And that is the first and most deadly step to losing your greatness in God. So I love John's response to this moment. Because this moment, his response patterns for us how to be great in God, in spite of the comparisons and measurements of life. Okay, ready? Point number one, convictions to be great in God. Three, I can only have what heaven wants me to have. Write that down. I can only have or receive what heaven wants me to have or receive. And this is John's conviction. He's totally sold out. <clears throat> Excuse me. To understanding this. Don't shake my hand after church. I'll get you sick. Okay, anyway. I'm over it, but it, I just don't want you to touch me. Okay. Uh, 
Verse 27, John's response. Hey, John, everybody's going to Jesus' church. John, your numbers are going down. Jesus' numbers are going up. And I love the fact that John's like, John's not saying, well, somebody kick up the advertisement budget. Well, let's get some smoke machines. Let's get some lights and electric guitars. That's what we do. <laughs> let's make sure that we put a big bill, billboard somewhere. Let's get some ad, ad budget. Where, what's going on? How could this possibly happen to me? No, 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 no. His conviction. Listen to his conviction. He says, I can't receive one thing unless it's given me from heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you that you need to start saying that over your life? You will start, you've got to start saying this over your life or you will forever live in what I like to call the garrison of comparison. You know, the, the measurement game. What do I have compared to what do they have? Where do I live compared to where they live? How smart are my children compared to how smart their children are? How come that girl on the cover of the magazine looks so gorgeous from head to toe? One word, Photoshop. And if you're not careful, you'll fall into the traps of this culture to measure yourself against other people. And it's not wise. In fact, when we start measuring, and I want you to write this down, when I start to measure my life, I'll be tempted to manipulate my life. In what ways do you Photoshop? In, in many ways, we come to church and we Photoshop, don't we? We don't tell people what's really wrong. We come to church, hey, how are you? I'm doing great. But you were just cursing your wife out on the way to church, weren't you? You were just screaming at your son to get out of bed, weren't you? <laughs> and you come to church, you Photoshop. <laughs> God bless you, good to see you, amen, praise the Lord. Jesus is Lord, amen. And, and if we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap through uh, manipulate our lives, through spending money we don't need to spend, and, and, and measuring our uh, impact or measuring our importance against other people. And it starts with small things, like young people, this is how they're getting you hooked on smartphones with filters and Instagram and, and connecting to others and TikTok and whatever you have, Snapchat, and making sure that you put on your best face so that people see you as something that you really aren't. And that's where you get exhausted trying to live up to this expectation of what other people want you to be. And mind you, these people don't give a rip about you. Do you know what they give a rip about? themselves. <laughs> While you're worried about getting all your blemishes off of your face, they're only thinking about getting their blemishes off of their face. So pop your own pimples and start to be happy with who you are. Oh. A lot of parents or a lot of pimple poppers? I don't know. It's, didn't expect that applause line, but amen. Amen. You know, they, they tried to do this to the Apostle Paul. They tried to do this with pastors, too. <laughs> I'll never forget when we started North Attleboro, and we had this guy, and he used to love to compare me to Joel Osteen. All the time. He would tell me, you know, Joel's doing this, and Joel's doing that. And be like, man, I'm not Joel. And I don't want to be Joel. Joel should want to be me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but, but that's what people do with even ministers and pastors, comparing to other people instead of rejoicing for who God made them to be, for the assignment that God has given them from heaven. I have what heaven has given. And you need to tell yourself that on a regular, wake up in the morning and tell yourself, I have what heaven has given. Somebody say that with me on the count of three. One, two, three. I have what heaven has given. And they tried to do this with the Apostle Paul. They tried to measure him. You know, he starts this church in Corinth in the first century. We have two books in our Bible written to the book to the church in Corinth. It's called 2nd and 1st Corinthians. He has to write a bunch of letters to these churches because they're so messed up. And when he left the church, Paul the Apostle, these guys, they called themselves, and I kid you not, this is funny. It's in the Bible. They called themselves super apostles. So Paul was an apostle. He plants the church and he moves on. That's what an apostle does. And after he left... These, these self-appointed super apostles move in on Paul's territory and they start dissing Paul. They're like, oh yeah, he's nobody. Actually, he's been in prison a couple times. You don't need to listen to Paul anymore. Uh, we're here. We're the dun, 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 super apostles. Like, how many know Christians get nutty, right? So they're comparing themselves against Paul. And I love what he says, two verses in the NIV in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. I love it. He says, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. In other words, we're not gonna get into the game of Photoshopping our lives. We're not gonna get to, into the game into the apply filter nonsense. 
He says, when they compare themselves or measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not what? One of the stupidest things you can do is to sit there and compare your life to somebody else's externalities. One of the stupidest things you can do. Look, social media is a highlight reel. They are showing you their best moment. Vacation on the beach. Look at us. That's not really what they're like all the time. Nobody lives on the beach except bums. <laughs> okay? You ever go to a beach lately? Not exactly, you know, a Victoria's Secret model show. You know what I'm talking about? This is, this is not exactly the highlight of human existence. And it's, this is what happens in our world. But we put the best picture and image of ourselves in front of other people. And then if we're not careful, we'll measure ourselves by the best image that other people present of themselves. Then all he says in the next verse, in verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond our proper limits, but we'll confine our boasting. We'll keep it to what? To the field God has, say that next word, everybody, assigned to us. This is my assignment. Some of you need to tell that about yourself and about your job and about your children, about your parents, about your spouse. Like, well, I picked them. Yeah, but... If you had to do it all over again, knowing what you knew then when you were that old, you'd probably pick them again. You can't, you can't put old brains on young shoulders. Amen? So we make decisions in our lives and we choose people. And instead of measuring those decisions against what we now know, what we need to rather do and say, okay, God, here I am. This is my field. This is my assignment. Do what you want now through me and in me. I love this life verse. This is a life verse for me, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, everything that you have is a gift. You say, well, I worked hard. Yes, but somebody provided the opportunity for you to work hard. Well, I went to that college. Yeah, but somebody gave you the grades and the, and the class and the teaching. I mean, you're, even the breath in your lungs right now, you're not producing that. You're just inhaling it. Every moment is a gift from God. Every moment is something that heaven has decided that I should have. And if you live with this conviction, you will, you will get out of the rat race of comparison. You'll get out of the measurement game. And you will start having joy in what God has given you. Conviction number two. My joy comes from having absolute clarity on my why behind my what. Now, I know this is the main theme of the message, the why and the what. But at this point, he's talking about bear in on the fact that you've got to find absolute clarity. Clarity. Why am I doing this? That's what John the Baptist had. This is what made him great. Verse 28. He goes on a little tangent here. It's an important tangent. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, now when he says you, you bear me witness is that He's saying, guys, I've been telling you this from the beginning, that I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Jesus. This is something that I live, this is something that I believe, this is something that I've ascended. You, you, you should have listened, but you didn't. This is not who I am. I know who I am, and I'm not that person. And then it says this, verse 29, this is the tangent I want to go into. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, let me just stop there. When Jesus refers to, I'm sorry, when John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom, he is making a theological declaration, and the theological declaration is this. He is telling those people that Jesus is God. And the reason why is because the Old Testament is filled with this kind of illusion of the bride and the bridegroom uh, in God's relationship to his people Israel, all over the prophets. He's the husband of Israel. He cultivated her. He drew her to himself. He loved her. He married her. And then she went and she... She went slumming with all the pagan gods around them, right? And that's, that's what the, the, the prophets talk about. Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them. So when John the Baptist says he's the bridegroom, he's saying this guy is God. He is God the Son. And he has the bride. Who do you belong to, Waters Church? Jesus. You don't belong to me? I am not your shepherd. I am not your, I'm not, I'm, 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 well, I'm kind of a shepherd, but I am not the main shepherd. My, I, at best, I'm a sheepdog. <laughs> oh, look to Jesus. <laughs> He's the great shepherd, amen? 
But anyway, look what he says. The friend of the bridegroom, now this is John's job. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this what? This joy of mine is now complete. Now what John is doing is he's describing a detail about first century Jewish weddings that you might not be familiar with, but that's why I'm here. He calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. You might be thinking he's saying, oh, he's the best man. No. Uh, the best man in American vernacular and culture is the furthest thing away from the friend of the bridegroom in first century Jewish context concerning weddings. What do best men in the West do? What's the, what's the most that they do? Let's be honest, right? They throw the bachelor party. They wear a tux for the second time in their life. They hand the rings to the pastor and then they make a tea, toast. That's it. Right? You, don't really, you don't really go to the wedding to discover what the bridegroom's, uh, what, what, what the groom's best man is going to do. In the first century context, the friend of the bridegroom, and this is incredible to think about this, he was responsible for everything. He put the ceremony together. He would organize the whole event. He would put the bridal party together, the, the groom side of the together, all that stuff. They did a lot of stuff similar like this. He would organize the whole event. He would organize not just the event of the wedding. He would organize the 7 to 14 day feast that followed the wedding. He was the master of ceremonies. He was in charge of the ceremony, the wedding, the, 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 the solemnization. The whole thing was riding on him. And then he had one last job on the last night of the wedding feast, here's what he would do. He would let the he would guard the bridal chamber where the, the newly formed couple would consummate their marriage. He would guard the entrance. He would let the bride sneak in unannounced and prepare herself for her husband. And then he would stand guard at the door and wait because the bridegroom would go out of his house with a big ceremony and big parade, people with torches and lamps, and they would march from the bridegroom's house to the bridal chamber at night. Everybody would be celebrating, everybody would be dancing because it was a big celebration. And the bridegroom, would his friends would stand there and wait for him to arrive. And when he heard his voice and he saw him, because it was dark back then, uh, no, no streetlights, he would step aside and let the bridegroom in. That was his job. Here's what John the Baptist is saying. That's what I'm here to do. I am here to guard this woman, what's the woman? The church, you're the woman. I am here to guard this woman for one man and one man only. And I'm gonna do my job until he shows up. And when he shows up, I step aside and he gets the glory and he gets the preeminence in my world. And ladies and gentlemen, there is no better way to live than to do what God has called you to do and assigned you to do to the best of your ability through the ups and the downs until Jesus shows up and gets the glory from your story. That's what John is telling us right here. Let me tell you how this is gonna help you. I hope you get this because this is really good because in America, because we're constantly in the measurement game, <clears throat> we love to do this. We'll just say, well, what, what is my calling? I wonder what my purpose is. What has God called me to do? And, and really what we are talking about there is, <laughs> we don't like where we are, so we imagine there's a better place that if we pray enough and fast enough and think about it enough and, and seek for it enough, eventually God will get us to that place where we will finally be happy. So we always have this kind of carrot on a stick thing with our calling. What's God called me to do? And, and let me just tell you something. Let me, and back in the day, we used to say, how do I find the will of God for my life? <laughs> it's not hard. The will of God is two things. Are you ready? Know God and enjoy him forever. Know him and enjoy him forever in what you do and where you are. And instead of playing the game of always imagining that there's some far off place where you will finally be happy and live happily ever after, Learn to find your calling in where you currently are. In other words, don't let Disney movies disciple you. Are you hearing me? <laughs> don't let Hollywood disciple you. Hollywood, or how about romantic comedies on the Hallmark Channel? Oh my Lord, they're all the same story. <laughs> Bu busy city woman 
career-driven, takes a vacation out in the countryside, and she meets her former boyfriend, the, the truck-driving, flannel-wearing cowboy. And wouldn't you know, he's also a multimillionaire on the internet. And she falls madly in love with him, and they live happily wherever her. She moves out to the country and starts a candle shop. I mean, it's the same story. Every stinking Hallmark movie. <laughs> and we Christians let that get into our spirit. There's some cowboy out there, or cowgirl. There's some, cow, there's some imaginary calling out there that if I find it, I'll finally feel fulfilled. No, that's never going to happen. It's not the way to joy. What John patterns for us is how you find joy. Are you ready? I want you to write it down so I know you're getting it. Joy is not finding what I'm called to do. Joy is do, doing what I do with a calling. Oh, that's good preaching right there. What do you currently do? Now, I, I'm not against you having plans and purposes and dreams, but don't be so dreamy that you're not diligent where you are. Are you hearing me? What, what, what's in front of you? Who's your, who is your spouse? Not who should be. <laughs> Marriages, husbands and wives, it's real simple. It's real, you could read a hundred books. At the end of the day, God's word is the final authority. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrifice for her. That's what you do. Wives, you know the word? It's the S word. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And stop Wondering if you married the wrong person. I've got a newsflash for you. You did. <laughs> Fact check true, okay? The reason why is because you married a sinner. <laughs> and every sinner is the wrong person in some way, okay? Let's let the healing begin. <laughs> so, so, so stop imagining somewhere over the rainbow. No! No, what has God given you now? Let me give you a couple verses to back this up. Colossians chapter 3, 23. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, not find what you should do. No, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. You are serving the Lord Christ. This world needs godly cashiers, godly bankers, this, this world needs godly janitors and godly lawyers and godly doctors and godly medicine practitioners. Come on, somebody. This world needs godly high school principals. Amen? Do what you do. Serving Christ. Find your calling in what you're doing. Or you will spend a lifetime trying to search for what you should be doing and missing out on all the opportunities that God has set before you. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do. I love it. Whatever <laughs> Take the guesswork out. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I'm a preacher. Preachers fall into this trap. Do I do this for the glory of Christ or do, this, do I do this for the glory of me? No, it's for the glory of Christ. It's for his glory. And some of you got to start telling yourself, not telling yourself, telling God, God, get glory from my story. I, I might not like my story right now. Some of you are in the midst of a hardship in your story. Some of you are in the midst of tearing and crying and weeping over your story. But you've got to lay this moment down and say to God, I don't like where I am right now. I, didn't I wouldn't have chosen this if I knew it was coming. But right now, I'm laying this down at your feet. And I am going to do the best that I can, Lord Jesus, until you show up and you get the glory out of my story. Amen. That's what John the Baptist said. Third conviction, number three. Making Jesus great is the greatest thing I can do for the world. If you want to be great, make Jesus great in your life. Let him get glory out of your story. Let him get a testimony out of that test. Let him make a message out of that mess. Let him turn your life into something that other people can look to and say, I want whatever you got because look at what you went through. Look at how you do it. Look at how you live. How come you're so joyful? It's because you know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. You've got a joy that this world cannot take away because you know that God is with you serving and doing what you're doing and you're never alone. He's with you to the very end of the age. People see that and they're attracted to it. The greatest thing I can do is make Jesus great in this world. John 3.30. What does he say? He must, what? 
and I must decrease, just underline must, because whether, <laughs> whether you want to or not, you're gonna decrease. I've heard rumors of this, I'm 46, I've heard rumors of this, eventually you get shorter, whether you like it or not. <laughs> just takes time, yeah? It's just, you're just gonna decrease. So settle this now, that it's okay if I decrease as long as Jesus is increasing. Here's why you wanna give Jesus to the world, because Jesus is the only one that can change somebody else's life. You can't, he can. And so some confessions from John chapter three, the rest of the chapter about who Jesus is. First, write this down, Jesus is above all. Write it down, Jesus is above all. That's what John says. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. What I'm trying to tell you is, you give Jesus to people because Jesus is above whatever they're going through. Jesus is above whoever's above you. I think about Daniel, I think about Esther, these, these exilic men and women of faith who stayed strong under the auspices of pagan evil kings and dictators, and they didn't know how, how am I gonna live? How do you live faithfully before God when your boss, your direct supervisor, your direct report, your king, your president, your governor is godless and pagan? How do you do it? Here's how you do it. You remember that there's someone over them who stands over you and that someone loves you with an everlasting love. And he's got you in the palm of his hand and he's over all of it. Number two, second, Jesus reveals the Father. This is why you wanna make Jesus known in your life because Jesus shows people what the Father is like. Verse 32, he who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, whoever receives Jesus' testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. If you wanna know God, get to know Jesus. This is why, Waters Church, you've heard me do this a thousand times, depending on how many times you've come, but every time I read the word with you, we stand for the reading of God's word because it's about the word of God, and then at the end of my prayer, what do I say? Help us to see Jesus, because it's only about him. If you see Jesus, if you know Jesus, you will know the Father. You wanna know what God is like? He is not this ethereal being that you get to make up according to your own inclinations. He is revealed fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, look at me. This is the Father, this is what he's like. And so Jesus reveals the Father. Number three, Jesus sends the Spirit he sends the Spirit, he sends the Holy Spirit, John 3, 34, for he gives the Spirit, and I love those last two words, what? Without measure. Can I tell you that you might, be, you might be low on the Spirit, he can give you more. You might be running low in life, Jesus can give you more. And he doesn't hold back, he wants to pour out the Holy Spirit in your life. And then finally, Jesus, fourth, is in charge of everything. And that's the best news I could give you. But it's where the rubber hits the road. What, what does it say in verse 35? The Father loves the Son. And please lean in here on this last line. And has given all things into his hand. Are, are you hearing that? The Father gave all things into Jesus' hand. The Father gave the world and his kingdoms into his hand. He's in charge. This is where the rubber hits the road because sometimes we don't like what he's doing. But he's our advocate, he's our friend, he's our brother. Hebrews says he is our true high priest. He's praying for us, he's interceding for us, and he presents us before the Father, perfect, holy, and righteous, so that the Father can hear our prayers. And the last line, whoever believes in the Son, notice that it does not say, whoever believes in God. Can I just say something, it might sound shocking. You believing in God means nothing. It means nothing. James says that the demons of hell believe in God and they shudder. It's not about believing in God. That's not the testimony of the Bible. You gotta believe in the Son. And if you believe in the Son, 
who has revealed the Father and sends the Spirit and is your sacrifice for your sins and your high priest and your Lord and your Savior and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you believe in Him, you do not suffer wrath, but you enter into eternal life now and forevermore. And you never get taken out of His hand. He'll never lose you. He'll never forsake you. And He'll be with you until the end of the age. Last week I ended my sermon talking about a guy who wasted three decades of his life in the South Pacific, Hiro Onoda, who fought the Second World War for 27 years longer than it existed. Today I want to tell you about a guy who found his life in the South Pacific. His name was A.W. Milne. He was a Scottish Presbyterian minister and called to missionary work. And he was part of a band of brothers who made a unique covenantal agreement together about 150 years ago. Here was their agreement. They were going to go to the mission field and never come back. So they did something unique. They all bought one-way tickets to wherever they went. And then here was a real unique thing they did. They packed all their earthly belongings in coffins and shipped them to where they were going. No luggage. Coffins. They wanted to send a message to their friends, their family, and themselves. I'm already dead to Christ. I'm already dead to this world. I'm alive in Christ and he can have his way with me. And they went across the world and spread the message of the gospel. One of them was A.W. Milne, again, Scottish Presbyterian minister. And he, was, he, he set sail for the New Hebrides Island in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the island was filled with headhunters and cannibals who had killed and slaughtered every missionary sent before them, sent before him. And by God's grace, he landed on the island and he found the courage and the grace to minister to those people. And he stayed on that island for 35 years telling them about Jesus Christ. And when he finally died, they buried him in one of the most sacred plots of land that they had. And they put a monument at this headstone. And on the monument is said, when he arrived, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. That's how. God makes a difference in somebody whose life is okay. Saying yes to Jesus, I surrender. Have your way with me, get glory out of my story.